jump in. John chapter 12, verse 27. Here's how it goes down. And this is Jesus in this moment. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And let's stay there just for a moment, because have you ever experienced that in your own life? Like a moment when you're like, God, save me from this hour, from this season, from this moment, from the time I'm in, from bankruptcy, or maybe poor financial decisions, or relational brokenness. God, save me from this time, save me from this season. And it's like Jesus is asking this in question form. Like, I'm asking this, should I be asking this? God, save me from this hour. And one thing you'll see throughout the Gospel of John is up until this point, it's not the hour. From John chapter 2, you see this show up over and over again. This isn't the time, this isn't the hour, and now it's Jesus saying, save me from this hour. And then the, verse 27 ends with Jesus saying, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Which I really appreciate John allowing Jesus to be transparent, and now John tells this part of the story. Like you're getting this human side of Jesus. Where Jesus is wrestling within his spirit of God, I want to be safe from this hour. And then at the same time, like, no, no, this is why I came. This is what I'm here for. I'm here for this hour. Like, give me the courage to make it through this hour. And then Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. Which is one of the most dangerous statements you can ever make to God. Because I'm going to show you next Sunday as we talk about throughout the Gospel of John when you see the phrase glorify or being lifted up. This isn't like being lifted up on a throne. It's being lifted up on a, on a cross. This is a symbol of sacrificial love. And here's Jesus saying, Father, glorify your name. And what you see, even in your own life, when, like when we're saying, God, glorify your name, like the, the response of heaven is, like it, when you say this, God's going to glorify his name, but a lot of times God's going to glorify his name through you and through the church. Father, glorify your name. And then you get this, a voice came from heaven. And I don't know if you've noticed this before, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you don't get the voice of God speaking a lot, only a few times. And this is one of those moments you get it. There came a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Like, I have, I've already glorified my name, and I'm about to glorify my name even more. Again, it's going to happen. And the crowd that was there, they heard it, and they said it, it had thundered. They thought there was thunder. And others said an angel had spoken to him. And I've called this series we're in more than thunder. Because here in this moment, in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 32, you get the voice of God which sounded like thunder. And like this is a moment where it's like the voice of God stamps this moment. Like Holy Week has begun, and now the voice of God speaks. And now you're going to have the last few days of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. The voice of God like stamps the moment. I've glorified my name, and I'm going to glorif glorify my name again. And then Jesus said this. The voice you just heard was for your benefit, not mine. Because now is the time for judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus was fully aware of the battle he was stepping into. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So it started in verse 27 with Jesus like wrestling with his own spirit. Like, save me from this hour. No, I'm here for this hour. Turns into this confidence Jesus had. Of here's, like I'm stepping into this battle. I'm stepping into it. And when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. So... With that said, I want to welcome all of you to Sycamore View today. It's great to see those of you in person. So grateful for all of you joining us online. 
leading up to Easter over the next six Sundays, we're in a series in the Gospel of John. We've called it More Than Thunder. Over the next six weeks, I'm going to walk you through John chapter 12 all the way to the cross in John chapter 19. And next week, I'm going to talk about what it meant for Jesus to be lifted up and to glorify his name. And this, two Sundays from now, I'm going, to talk, I'm going to talk about love, betrayal, and rejection. I'm going to talk about John 17 in a few weeks when Jesus spends an entire chapter in prayer with God. Here in a few weeks, we're going to talk about identity, how Jesus was so confident in who he was in God. So I'm looking forward to spending time in John. So if you want to go home and just read either all of John or the second half of John, John 12 through 21, that's where we're going to be over the next few weeks. And, and not only that, we're also in a season where the elders and the ministers are praying and fasting for 47 days, what began last Wednesday, February 22nd, all the way to Easter Sunday on April 9th. You won't only have a leader who is praying for you, but a leader of this church fasting and praying for you as we're praying for God to awaken your hearts, your minds, to awaken us to what God is doing in our lives. And many of us are taking time to pray through the core values. It's a centering piece for us. And if you throw those core values up on the screen real quick, in fact, will you go to the next slide? Let me do a quote, and I won't come back to that. Aubrey uh, Malfurs, who wrote a book called Advanced Strategic Planning, and it's for the church, as churches develop, like who they are and what they're here for. And he says this about, Aubrey uh, Malfurs says this about core values. I define core values as the constant, passionate, biblical core beliefs that go deep and really, truly empower and guide it's the values, it's the DNA of who we are. It's, this is what God is like, and here's how we're, we're trying to live into it. Now, these eight core values, I try to keep these in front of you at least every couple of months. And there are very few things that have grown my love for this church more over the last couple of years than praying core values over you. Almost anything people bring to me to pray over, to them, over them fits somewhere within these core values. Like, this is what God's heart is like, and this is what we want our hearts to be like too. That we courageously anticipate the movement of God. We want to believe and have faith that God is on the move and we want eyes to see it, ears to hear it. We want to obey. We want to move when God moves. We raise up discipleship as the mission of the church because one of the challenges in churches is that sometimes we have made conversion essential but discipleship optional. We have made conversion essential. If you want eternal life with God, you've got to confess, repent, be baptized. But when it comes to maturity and growth, sometimes we've made it optional where Jesus never made it optional. Jesus wants to grow everything Jesus has saved. We, we want God to give us a burden for people disconnected from God, those who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus, those who may be far from God or far from church for some way. We want a passion and a burden for them. We, we want to be a church that genuinely cares about physical and mental health. We care about holistic health. We want people from head to toe to be set right. We want to stand at the margins with people because Jesus didn't, occasionally, didn't, didn't just occasionally go to the margins. Like He cared for people on the margins, giving dignity to people who either lost it or never had it. We pray for God to help us. To, we want the, it's, it's an honor for us to do this, to carry a ministry of reconciliation. That in and through Christ, Jesus is gathering all people, reconciling all people to himself. We want to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. And in order to do that, those of us who are looking toward or at the next generation, like we need to live these good stories that we want to hand on. And last but not least, we're a restoration movement. One of the best definitions of restore, restoration, is a return to life. 
I think is one of the best words to sum up Genesis through Revelation. This is what God does. So as we lift up Jesus and try to live out the mission of our church of helping people see Jesus, this is who we are becoming. This is who we are in the process of becoming. This is what God is like. This is who Jesus is like. And imagine what happens to our lives when we step, just a little step, into any of these values, how we reflect the glory of God in this world. And before we move any further into the Gospel of John, I want to give some props to the crow's nest, and here's why. I just came out of a three-week series earlier in February called Rewind. And most of the time, I think in my sermons, most of the time, there, there was a time, a long period of time, where I only had about 10 or 15 slides per sermon. But those were three Sundays that I had around 45 to 50 slides per sermon. There were a lot of scriptures, there were images, a lot of things, and here's the deal. When I preach, you know me. I mean, sometimes I, I don't, I'm, I'm not glued to my notes. Every sermon, I have around eight parts to the sermon. And I know how each part goes, and I know the transition from one part to the next. But sometimes when I'm up here in front of people, basing on, based on the response I'm getting and how I feel like the flow is, there are times that I re, like, reorganize parts of the sermon when I'm up here. Like sometimes I'll move six to four or four to seven. And, I, and, and even though words are coming out of my mouth, I'm like, reworking the pieces to the puzzle. But the crow's nest aren't connected to my mind to know when I do that. So sometimes I may do things in different orders, but they don't. The, the work they do, not just for my sermons, but when Kip decides sometimes to do an extra chorus. Or, or the things they do just when it comes to sound, when it comes right now to live stream, how they're making this available to where every Sunday right now we still have a couple of hundred people who are with us online, either here in the city or beyond. So for the four plus people who are in that crow's nest every week, what they are doing to help other people hear the good news of Jesus, can we just thank them for everything they do? <clears throat> Love you guys. And this past Wednesday night was a wonderful night in the life of this church. Piper Jamerson and Logan Johnson, two freshmen here in our youth group, were baptized in the Christ Wednesday after church. So can we praise God for that? All right, the Gospel of John. One person says it like this, that what John does is like John takes you high up on a mountain, like 30,000 feet, and it's like John says... Look out from here with God, and when you look out from this mountain with God, you can see forever. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a story called the Transfiguration. It's a moment when Jesus took a few of his followers up on a mountain, and there Jesus was transfigured before them as to show them Jesus wasn't just a prophet who came into the world. He was a Messiah. He was God himself. But John doesn't tell a story about the Transfiguration. In a way, what John does is he presents you with an entire book, 21 chapters, where like all 21 is like a story of the transfiguration. Like this is God in human form, God being fully God, God being fully human. Now, if you read biographies, if you've read them before, most biographies spend very little time on the death of the person. You even read a biography about Dr. King or Malcolm X or Mother Teresa, less than 10% of their biography is about their death. But when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about a third of the Gospels 
About a third of the Gospels is about the last few days of Jesus' life before he died on the cross. We get a lot about his death. Now, Paul, later on in the New Testament, Paul does a lot more to explain what the death meant for us, what it does to us, arguing about the cross. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't really argue about what the cross meant. They just share events of what the cross did, what, what Jesus did, his obedience. And in John, as I read just a little while ago, when Jesus is wrestling with, is this my time or is this not my time? You get the sense Jesus is fully aware of the death that awaits him. In fact, it's like he's overseeing it. But here's a challenge for all of us, is we know how the story ends, which is good news because it allows us to live in victory, right? It's challenging news because sometimes we can hear stories about the cross or read about the cross and it doesn't cut us to the core. Right, of what Jesus did for you and for us and for the world. I hope over the next few weeks there'll be moments when God breaks your heart just a little bit to remind you of everything Jesus has done for your salvation and for the salvation of the world. Now the Gospel of John is broken up into two parts. Chapter 1 through 11 and 12 through 21. Kind of 1 through 11 and then around 12 through 21, where 1 through 11, you get a few years of Jesus' ministry, and then 12 through 21, where you get the last week of the life of Christ. And part one kind of ends, and part two kind of begins with a ritual. And here's the ritual. John chapter 12, here's the first story of the ritual, beginning in verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover... Six days before the Passover, John lets you know, here's the day it happened. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And this is where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, Jesus brought him out of the grave. And now this is one of Lazarus' first meals after coming back alive. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, just like Martha did in Luke chapter 10. She's serving while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's all you get about what Mary did. You don't hear her speak words. You aren't given her motive, like motivation. There are no intentions. Like, it would have been great to have had like a little snippet, like something from Mary. What led her to do this? All you get is her action. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to portray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. You get the sense John wasn't a big fan of Judas. I mean, the way he writes about, John, about Judas is like, man, here's what Judas did. And footnote, let me just tell you something else he did. He was a thief. He would steal things. He was a keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself to, to, what, was, to what was put into it. And then Jesus speaks. And this is how the story ends. Verse 7 and 8. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Like Jesus comes to the defense of the woman. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. And Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
And Deuteronomy 15, 11 says you'll always have the poor among you, so do something about it. So it's not like Jesus isn't saying, like, don't care for the poor. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Like, leave her alone. Like, what she did is a really, really good thing. I want to point out two things about Mary. One, her courage. How courageous it was to be in a room that was probably a room of men around a table, men with influence, reclining at a table, and for her to come into a room like that and to drop down to Jesus' feet and to wash them. Like, like, there's no way she could have done this and conversations like keep going around the table. And not just that they would see it, now the smell of perfume, expensive perfume filled the whole house. It took courage for her to do something in the moment knowing that everyone in that room was going to see her as awkward, that the moment that this was strange, like what is she doing? Yet she had this love and affection in that moment for Christ that she didn't care what other people think. Sometimes we, too, we care too much about what people think about us. Even how we express or live out our faith, we care too much. Take a lesson from Mary. When it comes to expressing your love for Christ, it doesn't matter what other people think about you. You express your love for Christ. She had courage. And for her, this was also surrender. I'm not sure how much she knew that that perfume was meant for the burial. But in this moment, what she did know is that Jesus, someone she had followed and heard him teach and had seen him perform miracles, had just brought her brother back to life and she is surrendering to the one who can bring life to the world. This is her posture. Now, I don't know if you've ever engaged in a foot washing ceremony of any kind, but if or when you do, if you've ever had your feet washed, it's an awkward moment. If you've ever washed someone's feet, it's awkward. If you've ever been around people who are washing feet, it's awkward. After my junior year, right before my senior year of high school, uh, there was another guy in our school, and together, I mean, we, were bro we both felt a call of God into the ministry. We had a passion for Jesus. There was a revival that broke out at our public school there in Dallas. And it was during two days of football season, and then we decided one day we were going to have a luncheon, and then we wanted to wash the feet of all of our teammates. And it was a great idea until we started washing the feet of our teammates. Because this was a, a bunch of teenage boys having just finished two-a-days in the heat of Dallas, Texas. And we washed a few dozen feet that day, which was so awkward. Yet there were also these little holy moments that happened. Back in the first century, I don't know, I, I mean, foot washing was a, it, it was a fairly, I mean, you would, you would see this. This wasn't something that just happened with kings and emperors and people with power. I mean, imagine like their dirts. I mean, roads are made of dirt. You wore sandals. You come into houses, you have dirty feet. A lot of times you would wash those feet as you came into a house. And I know some of you have rituals that you have uh, tried to practice in your own home of taking off shoes before you go into your home or asking people maybe to take off their shoes before they come into your home because you don't want them tracking dirt or maybe they stepped in dog mess outside. Like it, it's a good thing to have, right? Take your shoes off, walk into a house. And I don't know how many people in the first century culture suffered from potophobia, which is the phobia of feet. It's the phobia. I don't know how many of you do. It's that phobia of the anxiety that can come up in you whenever there's the exposure of feet around you. 
If you've ever been on an airplane or in a coffee shop and someone comes walking in with flip-flops or slides and no socks and then they decide to cross their legs in the seat next to you. Or people who clip their toenails in public. Potophobia. When Casey and I were freshmen, Jeremy and Sarah Upton, I don't know if y'all remember this happened at ACU, but there was this one guy who out of, uh, out of asceticism, out of his own self-denial, like a form of fasting for him, he decided that he was not going to wear shoes on campus anywhere. No shoes, no sandals, nothing. So all around campus, August, September, in the heat of Abilene, Texas, no shoes. December, January, February, as long as it wasn't below freezing, no shoes. Walking in the chapel, walking hallways, into classrooms, into men's restrooms, no shoes. But when it came to the cafeteria, ACU made a rule for him. He had to put his shoes on. Because there are too many people in the cafeteria complaining about trying to eat their food while there's this guy who never wears shoes. He had a following of a few other guys who started doing the same thing. And 20 years later, I don't know if he's still doing it today. Good for him. Like, you go and you do you, right? I don't know. Potophobia. My mother's worst part about flying is when she has to go through security and take her shoes off. She hates it. Potophobia. This anxiety that would creep up. And in first century culture... It, it was usually slaves who would wash feet. It was meant for slaves. And you have on record some Jewish rabbis who even said the task of washing feet is too lowly and demeaning even for slaves. So there's some Jewish rabbis who are like, that is, like, that is a job nobody wants. Slaves shouldn't even have to do it. And there's some places in the world today, and I think specifically about some places in the Middle East, some countries in the Middle East. Do you remember, have you seen like political protests where you see people take off their shoe and they use their shoe to hit statues or billboards? Like you've seen this. This isn't just people thinking, oh, I just need an object to hit a statue. Like it means something to take a shoe off of a foot. This was demeaning. This was an insult that they're going to hit that with their shoe. Not just any object. And I don't know if you remember when President Bush was standing at a microphone in front of the media one time and the Iraqi journalist threw a shoe at him and he just kind of dodged it. I don't know, just kind of West Texas dodge. Yeah, just moved and went flying by him. It wasn't just a journalist saying, I need something to throw. And should I throw a pen or should I throw a pad or should I throw a shoe? It was, it was demeaning to take a shoe off of a foot. This was an insult. This was a demeaning task. And in John chapter 12, Mary drops to Jesus' feet and washes his feet. And then in John 13, Jesus does the same. And this would have been just a few days after Mary washed Jesus' feet. And I wonder if there was a moment that Jesus was inspired by Mary. Like what Mary did for Jesus, Jesus was like, that's a good idea. Like, maybe I should do that for the disciples. Maybe for Jesus, it was something he got from a slave. Like, I, whatever it was. Here's how the story goes. John 13. I'm going to point out a few things to you as I read. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the fat Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come. For the first time in the gospel of John, Jesus is aware of the hour. Up until this point, the hour hasn't come. Until Jesus prays in John 
chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, and now the hour has come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who, serve, who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And the evening was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas and the son, the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. And I want you to see what happens right here. Verse 1 is like, hey, God is on the move. And then you also see the devil is on the move. Here's a clash that is about to happen with the desire of God and the desire of Satan, where God's intentions is the cross is going to bring salvation to the world. Satan's and his intentions are the cross is going to bring a death to God, a death to Jesus. You see this clash that is about to happen. In verse 3, Jesus knew. In your Bibles, if you circle things, in verse 1, you have Jesus knew or Jesus knowing. And in verse 3, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He was now fully aware of what was happening. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under, under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus was confident in who he was and what was happening, then now he takes the position of a slave. And in verse 5, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And let's stay there just for a moment in verse 5. He washed all their feet. How much time do you think it took Jesus to go around to what we think maybe in 12 people and wash feet? Taking a basin in front of each one washing the feet and then moving his body to the next one. And here in just a moment, you're going to see the conversation he has with Peter that has three pieces to the conversation, but that he also washes John and James and Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And at some point, he got in front of Judas, knowing he was going to be betrayed by the man, that he was already in the process of being betrayed by him, and Jesus washed his feet anyway. He washed all their feet. And then you get three different pieces to this conversation with Peter. In verse 6, it says this. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. There are moments when God may touch our lives that the transformation of that moment may not, we may not understand it for months or years later. Like what Jesus is doing for Peter, what Jesus says is you may not understand right now what's happening, but this is going to be a moment you're going to reflect on for the rest of your life. Conversation 2 with Peter in verse 8. Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, your feet, you have no part with me or you have no share with me. And I want to come back to that phrase here in just a few minutes. And then in verse 9, it says, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, my hands, my head. It's like Peter's like, just, I, just, I want to be clean. Everything about me, I just want it to be clean. And Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Now for any children, teenagers, this is not like Jesus saying, Hygiene 101 is just wash your feet and that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter like washing behind your ears or your hair. Like Jesus isn't making a point about hygiene. But here with Peter's like, your feet are washed right now. That, that, that's all that matters for you to be clean before God. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean and you're clean. They're not every one of you. For he knew what was going, who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He asked them. Because you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is exactly who I am. 
But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And let's, let's keep that slide up just for a moment. In John 13, with Jesus washing feet, there are two interpretations. And the second interpretation, the second one, is when Jesus sits down with them after washing their feet. He sits down with them, and what he says is, I've set you an example. You need to do as I do. And then verse 17 even ends with Jesus saying, those of you who do this, like you do it, you will be blessed by doing it. So there is this call to service, to getting outside of your, your comfort zone. That's interpretation number two. Jesus sets an example. And then there's interpretation number one for Peter, which is as he is washing their feet, Jesus is trying to let Peter know that what I'm doing for you right now, I'm pronouncing a cleansing over you that's going to go with you for the rest of your life. You cannot experience salvation in Jesus without being cleansed in Jesus. And cleansing and being washed is about the old being removed and the new coming. And sometimes in the Christian life, like we hold on to the old self and we hold on to the new self and we just hope at some point the new self will finally outlast the old self. When the language of the Bible is to let go of the old self, cling to the new self, And just know that that old self is going to try for the rest of your life to claw its way back in. Claw its way back into your heart, into your mind, guilt and shame. But you cling to the new self. This is the cleansing that you're in need of. And the way Jesus frames it is, you may not understand right now, but years later, you're going to reflect back on this moment of me taking the position of a slave. And you're going to remember the cleansing that is upon you. One person, they, they uh, talk about this moment, and here's what they say. This is a pivotal moment, talking about this moment in, Jesus, in, in life with Jesus in the Gospel of John. In that Jesus finally gives up on words. He has told them numerous parables about slaves, and now he will portray the most humiliating of slaves' roles, the washing of feet. Even after three long years of his often bizarre and indescribable behavior, the disciples are befuddled by the inappropriate behavior that leaves them speechless. So, this morning I placed two stories in front of you about feet being washed. And I want to try to make this as practical as possible. That there are three ways you could take home one of these, something that happened in one of these stories. Three things, and I'm just going to walk you through three things because maybe you need all three. Maybe you just need one. Maybe in conversations today in small groups at the lunch tables, you can talk about just one, like one takeaway from the message today. And one thing to learn from Mary as she washed Jesus' feet is her courage and her surrender. She surrendered, she surrendered to Jesus, not just because she wanted something from Jesus, but because of what Jesus had done for her. So what does surrender look like for you in your life? Like, what does surrender to Jesus look like for you in your life? And for Mary, she didn't care what other people thought about how she was trying to express her faith. Surrendering to Jesus is what mattered. Now, Jesus washes feet, and there are two things you could take home from this. One is 
as Jesus did, you do. Jesus set an example that we need some challenges in our lives to help us to take risks and get outside of our comfort zone, that even service is not about you feeling better about yourself. It's about being connected with what, with what God is doing throughout the world. So how might there be a challenge that God is giving you today to reach beyond yourself to be a blessing to someone in the world? It's going to take, it's going to involve just some risk on your part. Getting outside your comfort zone just a little bit to serve the way Jesus serves. And then maybe what you need to hear today is exactly what Jesus said to Peter. Because either there are things in your life you need to be cleansed from or a reminder of things that try, keep trying to creep into your life, of things you've already been cleansed from. That there is a cleansing that Jesus brings to you. And when Jesus uses this phrase, if you don't let me do this, there's no part in me or there's no share in me, this is a phrase used for heritage. Jesus is talking about family. Like, if you don't let me do this, like, we're not a part of the same family. You are not drawn into my family. It's only through being cleansed that you are drawn into Jesus' family. He's talking about heritage. So of these three, there may be one that draws you to communion today, or maybe it's a reminder of the cleansing that has come upon you or the cleansing you are in need of. And listen to the way Jesus says this a few times in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In John 5, 39 through 40, it says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come me to have life. And in John chapter 7, verse 39 through 40, it's whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So this morning, Randy Lillard, is one of our new elders, is going to be up to my right. Terry Miller is going to be in the back. Lenora Meyer is going to be over here on my right. And Laura Moore is going to be to my left. And I'll be down front on the left. And if there's any prayer, we can pray for you, for courage, for surrender, for cleansing, for reminders of cleansing, we're here for you. And if there's anyone here who has never surrendered your life to Jesus in baptism to be washed, will you take a step today? As the power of darkness closed in on Jesus, Jesus met that darkness with sacrificial love. Jesus never took the easy route. He gave it all. Will you close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's give thanks today. For Jesus, as we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of everything you have done. To be the one who sits on the throne and reigns over all, yet you were the one who put on a towel and washed feet. God, teach us this week what it means to serve like Jesus. Give us the courage of Mary. The courage that says it doesn't matter what we look like in the eyes of the world, even if we look like fools in the eyes of the world. May we be obedient to you and express our love. And God, may we be reminded of the cleansing that has come to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, a cleansing that has changed us forever. And because of this, we give thanks.
Through Christ we pray. Amen.